Welcome to Everything Co-op, bringing you information on how cooperatives can help improve your quality of life. This show is being sponsored by the National Co-op Bank, NCB. The NCB is dedicated to strengthening communities nationwide for the delivery of banking and financial services for the nation's cooperatives, their members, and other socially responsible organizations. For more information on the power of community ownership, visit ncb.coop. That's ncb.coop. Now stay tuned for your host, Vernon Oaks. Good morning, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks. Welcome to Everything Cooperative. And this month, we're celebrating Women's History Month. And this year's theme, 2019 theme, is Visionary Women, Champions of Peace and Nonviolence. And we're starting off the month with Dr. Jessica Gordon-Nimhard. Good morning, Jessica. How are you doing this morning? I am good. Busy as usual, but good. Thanks. Happy to be here. Fantastic. Thank you for taking out time. You're very busy being the professor of community justice and social economic development and chair of the Department of Africana Studies at John Jay College in the city of New York. Yep. Uh, all right. <laughs> Written this wonderful book called Collective Carriage, a history of African-American cooperative economic thought and practice. And Jessica, as I travel, I find more and more people have read this book and really enjoy it as I do. Thank you. It's actually always surprising to me. Most academics, we don't get this much publicity or interest in our work. So it's really been wonderful for me to hear that people found the book useful and are reading it and sharing it. Yes. Last week, I was up in Milwaukee, Wisconsin at the Up and Coming Food Conference. Conference, yeah. That's a great conference. I was there last year. Yeah, it was wonderful. It was absolutely great. It's my first time uh, being up there. It was cold, but uh, people were warm and friendly and excited and motivated, about 250 people. I'd say 40 to 50 percent African-American, which I was surprised at. Yeah, they do a really good job of um, bringing in African-American groups, especially, you know, there's sort of like an, a growing movement of food co-ops in African-American communities, and they seem to have tapped into and really helped support those groups. Yes, they had a track just called People of Color and and this food co-ops. So that was fascinating, and I found that people had read your book. That was the reason I brought it up. (laughs) Thank you. Like everywhere I go now. So we want to talk about um, black women in this cooperative movement and the history of black women in the cooperative movement. And you said something like uh, they've been the workers but not necessarily the leaders, or at least that's for overall women, but it, black women have been leaders. Is that, well, tell us about yeah. what you found. So, right, when I first started looking specifically about women in co-ops, because that was one of my interests, I did find that around the world, the problem was the black women were doing, uh, not the black women, the women were doing all the work, mm-hmm. um, but not necessarily being in control or in making the decisions or being the leaders. There was a, a great study in Japan about that. There were studies in Canada. The UN did a study about it. So I was interested in that. And I started looking at it for women of color. And then as part of the research I did on the book on African-American cooperative movement, I started looking at what was happening with black women. And there was an interesting phenomenon in, I guess, some of the consumer cooperatives, 
women were still kind of in the background and the men were the leaders, but women were doing all the work kind of like in the black church and in the civil rights movement, what was happening early on. But then I started looking deeper, and especially when you got to worker cooperatives, producer cooperatives, and then um, women in the civil rights movement who were pushing cooperatives, I started to see a new pattern, at least for black women, which was that they were actually in the forefront of a lot of these co-op developments and uh, the co-op movement. And then I found that even some black women like Nanny Helen Burroughs out of Washington, D.C., were being used by the larger U.S. cooperative movement as spokespersons. Hmm. Nanny Helen Burroughs in the 30s was actually a member of the Clusa D.C. chapter, Remember Clusa Cooperative League of the United States, which then sort of changed its name to National Cooperative Business Association. Now it's National Cooperative Business Association, CLUSA. Anyway, their um, D.C. chapter in the 30s, there's letters in Nanny Helen Burroughs' files with them asking her to please come to this meeting and speak about the co-op movement, sort of the urban co-op movement, um, or come to this conference and speak about this. So she was clearly in demand by the mainstream co-op movement for the work she was doing in Northeast D.C. in the 30s. She started with a women's room and mattress-making co-op, worker co-op. Then they expanded to a consumer co-op because they got enough money from the federal government to do a farm out in Maryland. And so then they were doing, you know, rural to urban, what is it, farm to plate or whatever work, as well as doing the um, mattress and the and the brooms, you know, but she was considered uh, a wonderful speaker because she was already nationally known for other work she had done on women's education and in the Baptist Convention. So they also used her in the co-op movement. So um, I, I just want to get a couple quick definitions out here. Sure, uh, a sorry. Consum- a consumer cooperative <laughs> you mentioned is if it's if the co-op is owned and controlled by the people that uses the products or services. Right. Housing co-ops is an example. Uh, credit unions are examples of consumer and co-ops. food co-ops. Right. And food co-op, most food co-ops right. are are consumer co-ops. And if it's owned and controlled by the employees, the people that yeah. work in the business, it's a worker cooperative. Right. And, and producer. Pro- yeah. Yeah. I want to go to the uh, the purchasing co-op first. I think about that. The purchasing co-op you didn't mention, but it could be they come together to buy things like gas or farming equipment and so forth, and they pool their money together to buy things. They form this business. That's a purchasing co-op. And then the producing cooperative, I also call a marketing cooperative, is when they sell the goods and services. People come together, band together to form a business for that. So those are right. the types of And co-op. producers okay. also have a co-op to do value added to their product. So like Land of Lakes is a producer's co-op. All the dairy farmers that are members send most of their dairy products to Land of Lakes and then process it into cheese, milk, butter, etc. So it's not just the marketing, but they also actually do the value added part for each of the producers. And I have to give a shout out to Cabot Creamery because they're celebrating 100 years this year. Oh, right. And it's the same thing. The farmers take their milk and cabbage creamery, uh, make milk and cheese and butter and all of these different things from it, and then sell it to these different markets. That the farmer, the local farmer, could not get their product to these markets, and also the value. And they make money at the producer end as far and then as well as the farming end. Right. Okay. Exactly. So it makes farming much more um, stable and, I guess, lucrative, if you want to call it lucrative. Yes. So... 
I found that black women particularly ended up having stronger roles throughout the co-op movement, but especially in worker and producer cooperatives. And so I, was start, I, I mentioned the role that Nanny Helen Burroughs played both in creating a worker cooperative and then a larger consumer cooperative connected to it in the 30s in Washington, D.C., and that she was used as a spokesperson for the entire mainstream co-op movement in that area. Um, I wanted to give a few other examples of that. Actually, another producer co-op, kind of producer co-op are art and crafts co-ops, because then, of course, the artist is the producer, but they use the co-op for a variety of things uh, in addition to marketing sometimes the co-op provides the studio or the space to do the art in a space to sell your art. So you collectively share a space to sell your art to get art materials and then to also market your business. Well, Freedom Quilting Bee in Alabama in the 60s is also a great example of women's leadership because not only were these very, very poor sharecropping women who realized that they could augment their incomes with quilting, came together in a quilting cooperative, but also they were very politically involved, and the Freedom Quilting Bee is one of the founding cooperatives of the Federation of Southern Cooperatives, which was a regional organization that developed the year after the year that the Freedom Quilting Bee started. And Estelle Witherspoon, who was one of the founders of Freedom Quilting Bee, is actually... um, quite revered by the Federation of Southern Cooperatives, so much so that their annual awards program for their fundraising is named after her. The award they give every year is the Estelle Witherspoon Award. So again, these would be, you know, a tiny, small little town, Alberta, Alabama, right, which nobody ever heard of unless you know of Freedom Quilting Bee, Mm -hmm. right? But these women came together and did remarkable things with their co-op, but also leaders and became leaders in their community, leaders in the co-op, the black co-op movement, founders of the federation, etc. So another example where women were just starting out with something small, right? Uh, survival and making sure their families were well taken care of. Then they moved into community, making sure the community was taken care of and then moving into the broader arena. The other interesting thing about Freedom Quilting Bee was that they did not only did quilting, but they also bought land, which enabled them to put um, a child care center, after school program, et cetera. So they ended up, now that they were working out of the home, they ended up doing supportive things for their families, right? So having child care and all that. And they owned land, which gave them a position to help other members of their community get out of sharecropping and own and land ownership. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. Oh, no, I was—I thought you were going to move on, and I wanted to talk about that 23 acres of land they bought yeah. <laughs> before you moved on. Because <laughs> that was exciting to me to see that these you know, poor sharecropping women pooled their resources, started a business, and then were able to get pooled money together to buy land and create all of these different kinds of things, like you said, the daycare center and after-school center and everything that they were doing, and also get very politically involved. And get politically involved, right, they were part of the movement for registra- you know, voter registration. Um, as we said, they were part of the movement for creating more cooperatives in the South and developing a regional development center, which is the Federation. At one point, they were the largest employer in their town. 
so that they were very substantial. And as I said, the land ownership piece is really important. If anybody knows anything about black land loss, most of the history for African Americans has been attempting to own land and often having it taken away from us. So their ability, right, to pool their meager resources, get their families out of sharecropping, and help other sharecroppers to get out of sharecropping through land ownership and use of the land that they were able to buy is just it's, it's a beautiful, incredible story. Um, well, sometimes the sharecroppers, when they went to vote or registered to vote, they were kicked off their land. They were evicted. Yes, Fanny Lou Hamer that happened to some of the women in this, um, in, the, uh, in the Alberta story that happened to them and some of their neighbors. And so that was even more important for the co-op to own its own land and to have extra land to lease out. And to eventually they sold some of the lots to some of their neighbors who got evicted. And so that was also the whole piece of this, that they were able to support the larger civil rights movement because of what their co-op had enabled them to do. Right on. Well, we're going to get ready to take our first break, and it's a great place to break. you got poor women coming together, forming their business, being leaders, not only in their business, the quilting, but also in the community. Largest uh, employer and very political and helping the community, helping their neighbors out. A fascinating story. Yeah. Uh, we're going to take our first break, and then we'll be right back. then that's where you get the power. Just getting the information, there's no power. is dormant. You've got to get the information and use it, and that's why the National Cooperative Bank is sponsoring this program to give you information about co-ops. So just like the Freedom Quilting Bee, you can start your own business. You could pull together your limited resources, have a business, make some money, buy some land, create a child care center, after-school center, help your neighbors out, help your community out. Just a phenomenal way, and this is why I love co-ops. And I think that's why Dr. Jessica Gordon-Nimharm has been writing about them for the last 20 years. Okay. Yeah, sorry, I had myself on mute. Yes, without the last 20 years, I think, yeah, you can safely say that. So uh, it turned out, yeah, to be basically a, a career maker for me. And it was just a, a query, right? I started out just wondering. Right, how much African Americans were involved in cooperative movement, and how many black cooperatives there were, and then it just turned out that there was just a wealth of information and a wealth of different ways to understand and look at how the movement has proceeded over the centuries. So, do you know what has happened to the quilting bee? Well. I sort of do. I don't know. I can't tell you exactly today what they're doing, but in the last five years, they've struggled to stay in business. And mostly the struggle has been that the founders and early members were retired and died, and they didn't have as good a succession plan as we would have hoped. So some, in some cases, family members, daughters, and other neighbors got involved in some cases. They didn't have more people to get involved. And so they did have a hiatus for a while, but about five years ago, they kind of re 
formed and restarted and but sort of much smaller level. So I believe there are still some people still quilting in in the co-op, but it um it really had its height in the 90s, I would say. They had actually branched out into making pot holders and um conference bags and things like that. They had an outlet store in Buffalo, New York and things like that. So they had they had a good run you know, um, for, what, 30 years or so, and then they've been a much smaller footprint now. But as far as I know, they're still operating. So having that succession planning is extremely important. Extremely Extremely. important. It's one of the things I think we learn when we study most of the co-ops, which is, you know, you get a big push with the founders, and the founders educate themselves and have a lot of energy and excitement, but we don't, we forget that we have to keep doing that, right? All the new people need the same kind of education, need the same sense of excitement. It may be that sometimes even the sort of mission of the co-op needs to change a little bit, right? Because often the need, right, uh, the need for sharecropping women declined over the years, right? But the need for women to be in control of their own company and to keep a craft going and to run a business didn't change. But some, you know, some of the early immediate sort of motivating needs for that that kept the co-op going at first changed. And I think we have to make sure that our co-ops figure out how to keep growing and changing with the times and with the people and keeping that momentum going. And to me, a lot of that is about education. Some of it is even about reminding us of our history, right? I mean, of each co-op's history. And some of it may be figuring out new catalysts, right, for the business development and to keeping the business going. Well, if you look even today and you say that I've been told, I haven't found this out, whether it's true or not, that African-American women as a whole in the U.S. have a net worth of $7. So that, right, and um, if you have children, it's uh, negative, sorry yeah, well, to say. Yeah, no, some will be negative, some will be positive, but the net of $7 is almost like it's a break-even that, that yep. they, they just don't have any net worth. It's basically, and so to get income coming in like they did at the Freedom, uh, the Quilting Bee, and so that they could then form the child care, so which would give them some time to uh, work. And right. the money and would give them. place for their children. Yeah. And then they have money, so they end up with some sense of freedom in their life. They have some, some control over their lives. Uh, that is as much needed today it as it's ever it been is. needed. It is. And the other thing that's exciting about these worker co-ops is that you don't only get a good salary or income, but you're also an owner of a business. And when those of us who study wealth, which is also another thing that I do, equity in a business is actually one of the things that the most wealthy people have that the most poor people don't have. So worker co-ops and co-ops in general also provide that equity. So not only provide the need and the good and the service that we need at an affordable price, not only for worker co-ops provide, a, you know, a good income and a stable job, but then there's also the added piece of equity, which really can help you to amass some wealth. And so it's, yeah, it's not that we don't need them anymore. I think it's that sometimes the co-ops don't spend enough time with their members talking about why they're in existence, what what they're doing, what they're accomplishing, and how they can do more. Well, if 
the UN made 2012 the year of the cooperative, and I had the absolute pleasure of being at the UN in 2011 where we are talking about this. And over and over again, it was said that co-ops are the best, best kept secret. Right. And when I've looked at it, Jessica, I get that cooperators may talk amongst themselves about the benefits of co-op, but we really don't go out and tell the world about it. Right. And sometimes we don't even tell our children. So our children don't even know what we're doing or why we're doing it. And I think that's also a problem. You know, on a different note, I, I have also a pet peeve about that we don't teach it in schools, right? I think we should be teaching cooperation and cooperative economics from kindergarten so that we have young people who then grow up into adults who actually understand the model, can get excited about what it can do, and are more receptive to either starting them or joining one. And if we want to get back to women, uh, black women played a huge role in education about cooperatives throughout the history that I put together. I don't know if we're doing as good a job today, but I'm hoping that we are. But lots of the examples that I found, um, the support and the continuance of a cooperative was because the women were pushing it and training people in the women's guilds were meeting regularly and um, training themselves and training other people and writing about the co-ops and that kind of thing. And that's been, that has been really important to the movement. Helena Wilson with the Ladies Auxiliary to the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters, one of those people. She used to write a column about co-ops in almost every issue of the um, black worker that the union put out. That She started study groups among all the Ladies Auxiliary chapters throughout the U.S. and Canada. On And one of the main things the study groups discussed was consumer economics and cooperative economics. So she was one of those who really understood that the education piece and the information sharing was essential to the movement. So let's talk a little bit about the Ladies Auxiliary Guild. Do you want to maybe start talking about what the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters were and what her role was in this International Ladies Auxiliary? Sure. And Helena Wilson is one of those really unsung heroes, sheroes in the co-op movement. But anyway, let's start with the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters, the first official independent African-American union, especially in the 20th century. I did find some other black unions in the 19th century, but I guess, I don't know. Anyway, in the 20th century, the first official independent union is the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters. These are actually not just men, but mostly men, porters in the sleeping cars, trains, but also the the maids, the housekeepers on the trains were also members of this union. And it's predominantly black or all black, started by A. Philip Randolph, who most people know. And so it's known, you know, for its unionization and its promotion of black unionization and its militants in uh, the civil rights movement, right? There was an early call for a march on Washington in 1941 that A. Philip Randolph called, and a lot of the supporters of that were from the Brotherhood. But also, the Brotherhood has what was called the International Ladies Auxiliary to the Brotherhood. And this was the wives and actually the maids who were workers in the union who came together to support the union in whatever ways they could. And a lot of the ways had to do with um, education about labor issues, 
education about consumer issues. And then the ladies auxiliary were very excited and interested in cooperatives. And so one of their major tasks was cooperative education and trying to form cooperatives and credit unions among members of the Brotherhood. They had A. Philip Randolph support since the 1940, since 1918. A. Philip Randolph was already a supporter of cooperatives. So he and Helena Wilson, who was president of the Ladies Auxiliary for about 30 years, they collaborated on bringing cooperative information and sense of cooperative development to the union. Jessica, we've got to take our second break. Okay. And we'll come back and spend more time talking about the International Ladies Auxiliary to the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters and their whole role in this cooperative movement. We'll yep. be right back. Please don't touch that dial. Welcome back, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks, and the program is Everything Cooperative. We're talking about cooperatives and the cooperative movement, particularly with black women. And Dr. Jessica Gordon-Emhard is our guest today. And when we took the break, we were talking about the International Ladies Auxiliary to the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters and Helena Wilson, uh, who's just not known and from everything she's done that Jessica's written about, she should be as well known as A. Philip Randolph is not better known. <laughs> okay. Yes, and um, in a minute I'll talk more about what she did, but I also uh, interesting about her history which connects to something else about women, is that she started out in the mutual aid movement. She was a leader in a local mutual aid society in Chicago where she was and why that's interesting is because I start my book, and I start my book with mutual aid because that's how W.E.B. Du Bois started his book in 1907 on economic cooperation among Negro Americans with mutual aid societies because we both argue that those are really the precursors to the more formal cooperatives. And mutual aid societies were, are societies, they still exist, where a group of people come together with a need pool their money, usually with a small amount of dues per month, to create a pot of money that then, when you need to use it, the the group decides to give it back out to its members. So like a burial, mutual aid burial society, if you need to bury your dead, you go to your society and the society will pay for it because you paid your dues consistently and there's a pot of money to do that with. So it's very interesting because black women are some of the leaders in the black mutual aid movement from the 1700s on. And you find that... 1700s. 1700s on, yes. The mutual aid movement started very early in our history here in U.S. soil. And the earliest ones we can find were started in Rhode Island and Philadelphia. And then all over almost every territory in the U.S., had mutual aid societies, and many of them were run own, run and started and run by women. So that if you study the mutual aid societies in African-American communities, you find out that I think 80% of them were women-owned and run, partly, I think, because women were the ones in charge of the sick and the dying and that kind of thing. So they were. this is how they were making sure they could handle those issues for their families and their communities, partly because they were so involved in the church and religious things, and a lot of the mutual aid societies came out of that. But it's interesting because a lot of the women 
um, that I found in the co-op history had their start in the mutual aid movement, and Helena Wilson was one of those. So she already came to sort of the brotherhood and to cooperatives from the mutual aid movement. So she already knew that notion of pooling your resources, everybody coming together to address a need, using a you know some kind of quasi-business model, but a collective model to address that need and actually handling money, right? Because that's what mutual aid societies do. You actually exchange money and handle it and make collective decisions about what to do with your pool of money. So she came out of that kind of a movement, which is, one, you know, again, an example of how important the mutual aid society movement was to all this and how important women were to that. And so in the Brotherhood movement, the Ladies Auxiliary really declared itself with an interest in economic justice from the minute it was started. They had what was called Declaration of the Object, Object, Principles, and Aims of the Ladies Auxiliary, and its goal was to provide a common meeting ground for women who endorse the principles of democracy and wish to see them applied to the field of industry. And so the notion there was it wasn't good enough just to have your husbands have a good union job. You had a responsibility to do something for your community with that added money, right? Basically, the union job for the porters put their families in the black middle class. It's more working class from white standards, but for blacks, it was a black middle class. Mm -hmm. And it, what, you weren't supposed to just sit on those laurels of that now you were in the black middle class. You had a responsibility to spend that money to help the rest of the race. And cooperative economics was a way to keep that money recirculating in your community. So the notion was you've got a good job with the union. Now what does your family do? How does your family spend that money? Well, we should have a credit union so that we can put our money save our money in a credit union that will then give back to the community. We should have buying clubs so that we're buying in bulk together and using our money to buy from other black groups, to buy together to make our money last more. We should be creating um, co-ops like they, shoot, they participated in an eye clinic co-op so that when they had to go um, to an eye doctor, they were doing it at a co-op clinic and the money was recirculating that way. You know, basically the buying clubs would then become a food grocery co-op and, again, keep the money recirculating and moving back into the community. And so that was why they um, started study groups to learn about how to start a credit union, to learn about consumer cooperatives, to learn about the cooperative movement. Helena was writing articles about cooperative movements all over Europe and the Antigonish movement. She was writing, you know, a little short pieces on what's a consumer co-op, what's a producer co-op, how, you know, examples of them, and then moving around. There were, what, about 10 chapters? Denver, Chicago, St. Louis, Minneapolis, St. Paul, Detroit, Indianapolis, Washington, D.C., New Orleans, Omaha, Oklahoma City, Los Angeles, Seattle, Montgomery, Pittsburgh, Montreal, Buffalo, Jersey City, all had um, co-op study groups that were started by the Ladies Auxiliary Chapters. And they invited the men to come also because, again, even though the men already were working, they wanted the men to understand the co-op movement so they understood what the women were trying to do and what would be next to happen in their communities. So it was a very, very deliberate notion about how the co-op was supposed to contribute to community and supplement and augment 
what they already were doing uh, in the union movement, in the labor movement. I'm so excited about the education part, the fifth principle, training information, right. uh, fifth principle of cooperatives. But they, in their bulletin, they talked about um, subscribing to journals and newsletters about consumer economics and cooperatives. So not only were they having the study bees, but they were asking the ladies and perhaps the men to subscribe to these journals to keep learning, to keep growing, studying credit yep. unions and, and to consumer keep those cooperatives. journals going. Right? They were connected to Clusa, so one of the magazines they wanted them to subscribe to was the Clusa. I forget what it was called, Cooperative News or something. Anyway. Mm -hmm. Clusa had a, um, a magazine out, so that was actually one of the, on the list. You know, I saw in the archives the list of the things they were asking them to subscribe to. And Clusa, of course, is the Cooperative League of the USA. But the other thing I found interesting in looking at her history, comparing it to my life, is that she was the president of the auxiliary from 1938 until 1965. Well, 1965 was when I graduated from high school. <laughs> okay. And so it's like if this if this information was out there and my father worked on the railroad, my my grandfather worked in the mines, my father was a with a brakeman on the road in the yard. He mm. was not a porter. Mm -hmm. But uh we would get passes and we would ride on a train and I was always interacting with porters and stuff. But nowhere in my history, whether it's on in this this side of it or in school, nowhere was there anything about this co op world. And that's what I Yes, very weird. And you said you graduated from uh, Bluefield. Bluefield State High, High School and then Bluefield State College. Yeah. Right. And But that was connected to, remember, I had found that the Bluefield, what was it called? Bluefield Colored School? Originally, yes. Originally, yeah. They had a student co-op in the 20s and 30s. Yeah. And you didn't hear about that either when you were there, right? No, and my mother graduated from there in the 50s. Yeah. <laughs> no. So, um, yeah, for about 10 years, they had a student co-op. It was supplies, book, sort of like a book co-op and supplies. They bought pens together, you know, notebooks, all that. And they also used the dividends to help pay the tuition costs for higher education. Well, see, I find, so, it, I find it just fascinating they're selling the books and the papers and whatever they need, and the, like they have control other, over right. the bookstore to each other. Whatever yeah. profit they get or surplus, whatever you want to call it, they can get, give out dividends where they gave out scholarships. Yep. Okay? Yep. So they're helping yep. each other by supplying what they already need. It's fascinating. But yeah. then it stopped, and I question, why did it stop? I don't know. That's the that's that's one of the big mysteries for the research I did. I have not been able most of the co-ops that I found something about, I didn't find the whole history of the co-op. I found one article about it, which gave me either how it started or a specific incident about it, but then I could never find anything else about it. I almost didn't publish the book because I had so much information like that, where I knew it started now or it ended because of a big fight or whatever because of one uh, art, news article or magazine article or one research paper about it, but I didn't know anything more about it. And so I was like, how can I write a, you know, write a book where I can't tell people what the ending was for half of these examples? And then I decided that I couldn't wait to figure it out. I might never find out, but this information would still be of interest to people. So I unfortunately, there's, I would say, what, 80% of the co-ops that I talk about in here, I have no idea what happened to them or why. 
because it was so hard just to find any information about them. And, you know, partly I think it was, you know, I say this some other times, it was a little bit dangerous because, you know, co-ops, early on co-ops were seen as trying to buck the plantation system and buck the white capitalist stores and stuff. Then it was seen as part of the socialist and communist movement. So all along, like, blacks really weren't supposed to be involved in these things. And so I think it might have been we were trying to protect ourselves and our children by not really talking about what we were doing. But then we made the mistake of not passing on the legacy either. Well, I've said on this, and I've been called sinister about this, but I've I <laughs> said on this program is that I totally believe that the one percenters, that whoever the capitalists are, don't want us to know they about don't. about this cooperative movement because of that freedom that I talked about earlier that women got. Where everybody in this corporate world gets this freedom because they get this income, they get the knowledge, they learn how to work together, learn how to solve problems together, so that when there's a conflict and there's going to be conflict, learn how to solve that conflict, right. so that you get all of this positive stuff, which means that somebody cannot have their thumb on our head, right. holding us down and controlling us, so that they can get us to work for little to nothing. Right. And, and so it, even though they couldn't stop us from having co-ops, what I think they did stop was from us talking about it as much as we should have, right? So we still do it, and even though, you know, we didn't pass it down in the same way that we could or should have by telling our children about it, somehow each generation found the model and tried it and did it because I have no, there's no period of time where I did not find co-op activity, so that's the other really interesting thing. It's like organically, each generation kept finding it, but didn't realize that the generation before it had been <laughs> doing it. So we could have been even more powerful, I think, if we had been able to or felt comfortable passing it on more. But it didn't actually stop us from doing it. So it's a really weird combination of things. I guess, you know, you can't keep some things hidden. I just wondered at Bluefield State if... Like I was there in 1968 when they put their first white president in and they took the school was 95 percent white now that oh, the white right. power structure didn't want black students to have any control. I, did, right. I could just easily see that happening just like yeah. it did when they took control of the comp- of the of the school. But I could see that the same thing throughout is that if if a organization got powerful, politically powerful, I mean, look at what they're doing now with changing the voting rights they don't want us to have the vote they don't want us to have power they don't want us to have say so yeah i could see that happening clearly yeah it's a shame and you know it's a whole nother um show we could do because i also just recently published an article about um sabotage against black co-ops and how that builds stronger the case for reparations i want to read it but we got to take our last break (laughs) (laughs) We'll be right back. Washington, D.C.'s News Talk, 1450 AM, WOM, and 95.9 FM. Information is power. Hopefully you are taking this information, writing it down, and getting just knowledge about cooperatives so that we can, you know, just just keep doing this so so that everybody out there knows about it. It's a fascinating. So let's give some other examples, though, Dr. Uh, Nimhart. We've got the Cooperative Home uh, 
Care Associates, the Cooperative Economics for Women, the Dawson Workers' Own Cooperatives, Ella Jo Baker, Intentional Community, and Ujamaa. So we have about 12 minutes to talk about five co-ops. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, I was going to say we really can't uh, have International Women's Month without talking about Ella Jo Baker and Fannie Lou Hamer. So um, let's go for it. Let's do that instead of okay. um, those co-ops. Ella Jo Baker is another one of those sheroes. She's very well known in the civil rights movement, especially for working with SNCC and supporting SNCC. I don't think people actually know that she was a co-founder of Southern Christian Leadership Council. She was actually its first executive director, but Martin Luther King was its first president, so everybody associates it with him, not her. But the other thing that people don't know, which is important for our movement, is that she was the uh, co-founder and executive director of the Young Negroes Cooperative League in 1930 through 1936. And so I argue that actually all the things we know about her in terms of her belief in grassroots democratic participation and youth leadership all comes from her co-op roots, even though, as a, again, we don't, most people didn't know about her co-op roots. But when she graduated from college and moved up to Harlem, she got connected with um, George Schuyler, and the two of them created the Young Negroes Cooperative League. And the purpose of that was to empower young people, young black people and black women to, to lead the new movement in alternative economics and to start training themselves and creating co-ops throughout the United States. They had a five-year plan. Their plan was to start, they wanted three to five people in every town, city, area to come together and create either a consumer co-op, a buying club, or a credit union, and then to connect with other people in their region and create a regional co-op association and a credit union, and then regional factories to support the consumer co-ops and the credit unions to support the work. And then the regionals would then all connect to the National Association. They hoped that if they could get 5,000 young people to give a dollar a year, they would have $5,000 a year. This is in 1930s, remember the beginning of the Great Depression. They would have $5,000 a year with which to do co-op education and co-op development. She was actually a field director. You know, she's also known for being one of the most famous field directors of the NAACP in the 50s. But she was a field director as part of her job as executive director for the Young Negroes Cooperative League. And she traveled all over the country giving talks about women's role in cooperatives, about how cooperatives were an important strategy for economic empowerment. And again, this notion that young black people should be the leaders of this movement to move the whole black community toward more democratic economic structures like cooperatives. They were so successful in terms of getting the message out that their first conference in 1930 or 1931 was in Pittsburgh, where uh, Shiler was, uh, even though he lived in Harlem, he was a columnist for the Pittsburgh Courier. So Pittsburgh, I guess, was a natural place for them to do this. They had 600 people in attendance at their first conference. 25 delegates who were pledged as members of the um, Young Negroes Cooperative League, but 600 participants attended the conference. Just think about that. 1931. 1930, it's 
in Pittsburgh, it's a, you know the beginning of the Great Depression, and they got 600 people to come talk about cooperatives and for youth to be leading this movement. Um, and she, that was where she made her first speech about the role of black women in the cooperative movement and how important black women are to, you know, as, as organizers, as understanding the cooperative principles, that we would be the ones to really move this forward. And that the Young Negroes Cooperative League wanted, wanted to hold up the leadership of women and youth in this movement. So I have it. Tell me what you think about this, that, that women are sort of like work together. Women seem like they have a better sense of just working together, solving issues, not fighting each other, uh, nourishing kind of personality. So they seem like they fit co-ops. Well. Yeah, it's interesting. I think we we both maybe have the temperament because we carry the babies of the race or whatever, the species or whatever. Mm -hmm. But also I think partly, you know, the gender roles that have been socially constructive have you know, force women to be more, pay more attention, right, to family issues, to nurturing, that kind of thing. Certainly in the black women, African-American women have taken on that role in society of keeping the race together, providing the nurturing, doing everything possible to support child rearing and family development and community development. And so cooperatives fit very nicely into that. There's also some interesting biological research. I think it's out of Emory. It was a study in early 2000 or something out of Emory. The New York Times actually had an article about it. They did a study about cooperation and dopamine, you know, uh, that natural high that mm -hmm, our mm -hmm. body produces. Mm -hmm. And they found out that actually all people get additional dopamine or endorphins, I guess it was really endorphins that make you feel good and feel happy and high from cooperating, but that women got even a bigger kick so that women who cooperate got a huge dose of endorphins so that it really made them feel better physiologically. And that, in some ways, makes some sense if, you know, if it's true. I don't know if they ever reproduced the study. I only mm -hmm. saw it once. And as I said, it wasn't that men didn't get it. Men got high, too, on cooperation, but women got more. That's fascinating. And yes. so, yeah, I think, you know, and no one really talks about that either. I thought about trying to do some kind of column about that, but I wasn't sure what how to follow up on it. I, I wonder, because the high of, of, of being a team player, playing football, basketball, running track, working together. Yeah, it probably works for guys, too, right? Yeah, well, I felt that in a team, is that uh, this, when we cooperate and work together, and particularly if we cooperate, work together, and win, that's a tremendous high. But, right. Yes. Right. Okay, I can see Yeah, that. so anyway, so it makes us all feel good. For some reason, it makes women feel even better. So I think that might also help why women are so involved. And then I think, you know, in the black community also, you know, the other reality is black males have been so crippled in our society, right? They weren't really allowed to do much. So black women kind of just did whatever needed to be done because, you know, their partners were often, you know, not allowed to do it or discouraged or you know, literally stopped, hung, you know, or literally lynched, hung, yeah. right, hung, lynched, uh, mm. jailed, whatever. And so we just kept moving on some of these things. And some of the stuff, it was actually easier for black women to say it or do it, right? 
even though, right, as women, we couldn't even own our own separate bank account or anything. There's also lots of examples of um, women having to get the men to actually deposit the money or open the bank account, that kind of thing, because they couldn't do it without a husband or something. So there's all these weird <laughs> dynamics involved in that. I know we're going soon, so I do want I can't not mention Fannie Lou Hamer, so we can maybe we can end okay. on that or end on mm -hmm. something out of Fannie Lou Hamer. But we only we have talked, two minutes to so talk yeah, about. Yeah, we Fannie. talked about voting rights. Fannie Lou Hamer is a huge person in the voting rights movement and was a SNCC organizer in Mississippi. After the voting rights movement, she was also one who she and her husband got evicted for registering to vote and for training people about how to register to vote, she realized that getting political rights wasn't enough. We really needed the economic rights and economic justice, and that co-ops were the way to do that. So she started Freedom Farm near her hometown. She got uh, raised money to buy, I forget how many acres of land, to start a cooperative farm. They also She also did affordable housing on the land, a sort of CSA kind of uh, uh, what is that, consumer-supported agriculture kind of thing with the neighbors, with the farm, child care center, and I think a weaving co-op or a sewing co-op, all involved with the Freedom Farm. And again, the notion was, even if we have voting rights, we won't really have economic rights. So let's start by creating our own economic realities and cooperating together through the co-op ownership. And then from that more position of strength, they can't evict us from our farms anymore if we're active, if we have our own co-ops, that kind of thing. And so I know we don't have much time, but she was also one of those who connected from the opposite. She tried doing the politics first and the voting first and then came to the co-op movement realizing that the other stuff was a little bit hollow without the economic justice and economic independence. Yes. And I've been trying to get to Reverend Barber and his Poor People's Campaign with that. He has a great political solution right. to poor people but i'd like to see him put co-op and on his platform that would be great yeah we uh, should have a dialogue with him yes yes so what you would like to leave people we have less than a minute what'd you like to leave people with i think what i want to say is that the role of black women in the cooperative movement just shows how important the things that we already talked about, how important education, commitment, dialogue, building of trust, how important understanding the freedom of economic, that economic justice brings freedom Gotta and go. economic independence in order for us to do the rest of the work we need to do as human beings. Thank you, Jessica. Thank you very Thank much. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Everybody out there, have a wonderful cooperative week. Washington, D.C.'s News Talk, 1450 AM, WOS, and 95.9 FM.